What is up, everyone? Welcome into the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnson. My co-host is Mike Dawson, and this is episode 50. This might seriously be the easiest intro I've ever had to do. We have questions, questions, and more questions, and that's about it. So let's get started. Oh. I guess go to bed, dude. <laughs> dude, these camps... <laughs> camps in general are tough. Then ladies' camp, it's not tough because they're tough. It's tough because I don't understand women. And then you bring a film crew in. Oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, right. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so uh, it's. I, I don't want to use the... It's definitely not reality TV at all. I would say it's more of a camp documentary. And then they're seeing... They're using this as a pilot to see, can the camp documentary be repeated in multiple camps? Uh, so... Okay. Because uh, they're not documenting, it's not a drum set documentary at all. I mean, there's, I would say all the drumming they're using is probably just B-roll footage. It's mostly just the camper's experience of coming in and feeling a certain way and then realizing how big this world of drumming really is. I mean, a lot of these people, to them, drumming was whatever they saw on TV. So now all of a sudden they're being hit with patterns and ostinatos and rudiments and making something feel good where they're like, but... I didn't rush or drag, so it must feel good. And it's yeah. like, well, no, now we have dynamics, and you're not laying into the snare hard enough, or your kick's way too loud, or every time you hit a crash cymbal, it's 20% louder than everything else you played, and it scares people. So so it's just a big world. And so that's the what we're documenting, is what they go through on an emotional level and on a personal level as they get through this week. And then most importantly, what's happening as they're going through this journey on for themselves how is the support network of the other campers helping them get through it? Because I think that's the story that I'm hoping will inspire people that don't play drums. Mm. And then, if anything, it would be great to know that somebody sitting on their couch somewhere in the middle of nowhere just is like, you know what, I could play drums, and, and then we could grow our industry. Because right. I think as drummers, we're kind of stuck in our bubble, and we think that our industry is huge. It's, it's so tiny. And yeah, I mean, think about how many kids in, in your graduating class in high school played drum set. Maybe I think two, was, three. Yeah, there were three. I think in mine. Yeah, yeah. yeah we had because we had we had people in our percussion and our drum line that didn't play drum set at all. So right. they had sticks, but they didn't play drum set. Yeah. So there's that, and and there's just us still trying to figure out between Roland and Yamaha. And, oh my God! I'm so sorry. <laughs> Welcome to episode fifty. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Can't get out like, of that one. Was that your alarm clock? Was that like Dude. time to wake up, Mike? Bro, that was that was just uh yeah, that was just an alert that the bombs are being dropped. Get out of town now. My goodness, I'm sorry. Uh episode by the way, it's episode 50. fifty. Yes. Congratulations. Likewise. That's awesome, man. Well, our goal with this show is to grow the drum industry the best we can and to just alert people to the the experiences that people have in this camp. And I think that's that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, too, is just get more people involved, let them know that this is such a cool instrument. And it's such a – the great thing about this to me is there's no shelf life. You didn't miss your prime. If you're 34 right now and you're like, I, but I haven't even started yet, it's a great time to start. If you're 64 and you haven't started, it's a great time to start. There's no shelf life. It's not a sport. No, not at all. I mean, what would be the, the goal if it was a sport? I mean, what would you uh. – I mean, Wouldn't that suck? <laughs> if somebody if somebody handed you an award and said, uh, "By the way, Mr. Dawson, you are finished. You have you won the Super Bowl. It's a, nothing could be better than this moment right here. It's all going to go downhill. That's or, why we get yeah. to keep playing. Every day is a little better than the day before. You know, or like I mean, an athlete, you peak when you're 27 years old. That's it. Yeah. And then from there on, you're just clawing to stay in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you and I would be analysts right now at drum festivals, going like, "Well, I felt the backbeat was strong, good backbeat, rushed <laughs> rushed the fills a bit." He did, and then you'd be like, "Oh, I agree," you know. And ugh, screw yeah. that. Kobe Bryant and I graduated high school the same year. So really, he just went on a year long retirement tour. I'm like, oh man, that doesn't make you feel old at all. Jeez Louise, <laughs> I know. It's when I, and, and what's funny is when people are professional at something, I think they're older than they are. So with Kobe and Tim Duncan, I'm thinking like, well, yeah, it's time for them to retire. And then they say something like, well, he is 34. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, wait a minute, I'm 39. What do you mean he is 34? I'm just getting started. So uh, yeah, the, the quest to stay young. There's no age out in drumming. No, there isn't. <clears throat> and the instrument itself keeps you young. you know. And, yeah. and the great thing is even... 
when you get much later in life, I've seen some of my favorite drummers deteriorate physically a little bit, but their choices got so much more mature, so they actually didn't stop growing. And I love seeing that. I mean, I told you a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, just seeing Dave Weckl a few weeks ago, not that he's that old or anything, but he's still the best he's ever been. He's peaking right now and yeah. he'll peak tomorrow and the next day. And I love the fact that I don't, I'm not wishing to see vintage Dave. It's like, no, I like him right now. So yeah, true. Very it's true. good stuff. Well, you ready to dive into 468,000 questions? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we kind of, uh, we set ourselves up for this. So we got, this was, yeah, this was we our got fault. 15 audio questions. So awesome. I think we're going to be lucky to get through the 15 audio questions. So everyone that sent in text questions, we will definitely get to them. Maybe not this week, but they're going to, you know, I put them in reverse priority from the oldest to the newest. So nice. if we haven't addressed your question, we'll get to it soon. And you can keep them coming at mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. You can continue sending audio questions. I think this will be great to, to add to the show permanently. Absolutely. We won't, we won't do 15 every week. but uh, <laughs> Maybe one. Maybe, maybe one. one audio question a week. So, yeah, we've got, I just randomly numbered them and put them in a file so we can just listen to them and 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 offer our input. Well, let's take a listen to the first one. Hey guys, this is Luke from Chicago. First off, I wanted to say thanks for taking time out of your schedule each week to work on this podcast. Your dedication and enthusiasm is very inspiring. My question is, what and how to practice becoming a quieter drummer? I come from a heavy drum corps background where big stick heights are very natural and trying to bring my stick heights down adds a lot of tension to my playing. So I was wondering what I can practice to become a quieter drummer. I've heard Mike Johnston mention switching from touring to teaching. He became quieter. And I've heard Mike Dawson mention that he did a lot of drum course stuff. So I was wondering if you guys had any tips on what and how to practice becoming quieter. Thanks again, guys. Keep up the good work. The podcast definitely helps my commutes. All right. What do you think? I think that's really cool. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, we, I, we can answer the question, too, but it's really neat to hear our, our listeners' voices. Ah, oh, yeah. That was awesome. Luke, thanks for listening, man. I'm really happy that it's helping you out with your commutes. So for me, there's two things that I did that I can give you specific things to practice other than just paying attention to it. One thing is take any device you have. It could be your iPod, your iPhone, your uh, your tablet, whatever, your laptop, and put it close to the drum set like you normally would. But instead of plugging headphones into it, don't plug anything into it at all. And just let the natural speakers play a song and try to play along to it with no earplugs, no earbuds, no headphones, because your drums are going to be much louder than that. So you're going to have to really bring your volume way down to be able to hear the music. So if you can jam along to Sugar by Maroon 5, but it's only come out of the tiny little speakers of your phone then it's really going to train you to bring that volume down. And the other thing that I had to do at some point, because I just couldn't stop my muscles from wanting to hit hard as a rock drummer, is I had to choke up on the sticks a little bit. So as I choked up on the sticks, the sticks became lighter, and they just didn't make as much noise. So choking up a little bit, but then also really practicing playing quiet uh, were two big things for me. What about you, buddy? Um, so definitely get some classical snare drum etude books, because that you have to be able to play very quietly to, to play those properly. Maybe take some lessons with your local symphonic snare drum expert um, and play along to jazz records and try to match their dynamics. That's probably the single best way. I mean, because they're basically playing with an acoustic piano, so you have to you have to be able to hear all that, you know, hear the acoustic piano, and then find a, a jam session in your town and go sit in because jam sessions well find a jazz jam or like something that would be more acoustic music and go sit in and kind of see where you compare yeah um, it's really trial by fire because you really you don't know how quiet you actually have to play until you get into that context and, and it's it's definitely a muscle memory thing you have to practice so definitely. classical snare and drum jazz go sit in with some some local jazz or blues or something that's not rock and roll yeah and luke i would let you know too especially if you're a rock drummer or a metal drummer and you're thinking like but i don't even know how to play jazz at all don't freak out you know when, even when you go to a jazz jam you can tell them hey can we play something that doesn't swing too much and you maybe they'll play a bossa nova or maybe they'll say okay well let's play a funky version of take the a train or something they'll, they'll adapt for you the, most jazz ja jazz jams the cats are pretty cool and they've been playing swing all night anyways so they wouldn't mind changing it up so don't don't just not go because you think, well, I don't play jazz. Uh, you could you could probably make it work anyways. Sweet. Let's move on All to right. number two. Yeah, hey there. This is Dewey, uh, Dewey Decibel. 
And uh, congratulations, dear boys, on uh, that dear, uh, 50 episodes. That's quite an accomplishment, I would say. <laughs> so I got questions for both of you. First of all, uh, I put together one of them, their uh, Mike Johnston signature practice drum sets. You know, the uh, I got a hardcover book for my hi-hat and a uh, magazine for my snare drum big fatty pillow for my um um what do you call it there hey um oofta uh my floor tom and then i i even got a paper plate there hey and put down on the floor uh so questions for both of you first of all mike um not 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 that one mike the other one uh mike dawson uh what would you suggest for uh adjusting the paper plate to get better response because i kind of have some trouble playing a really fast doubles on there and question for uh, uh, Mike uh, uh, Johnston. Yeah, I um, was wondering uh, what you would recommend practicing. Because right now, with my book and my magazine and my pillow, I can play my uh, clickety click 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 flagada flagada. But I was wondering what your favorite fills were. So if you could sing me a few so I could practice them over here, that would be amazing. So thanks again, guys. Uh, uh, congratulations, Derhe. <laughs> that was money that was money i loved uh, it i'm pretty sure i know who that is but i won't call him out oh like, oh really I know, I know who you are i'm listening to you yeah yeah oh that is money <laughs> well yeah i mean you you got to work on your on your flacketings so if you don't get that flacketing flacketing flacket bang bang then you know then there's there's no need to even practice and probably uh. some Sugar to bows. Sugar to bows. Sugar to bows. Sugar to bows. But no bug at a fish. I don't, I don't do that. I don't do the bug at a fish. <laughs> I don't do shave, hair, cut, 10 bucks. I do sclat to get that. Oh, man. That was oh, good stuff. Man. Good stuff. Do we have a real question? Because... <laughs> Because getting your because getting those doubles out on a paper plate is not an easy thing, and I just don't think that you could possibly have any advice for that. Oh, what was that? That patches O'Hulahan and uh, dodgeball. He says <laughs> yeah, if, you yeah. can, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Well, if you can roll on a plate, you can roll on a drum. That's right. That's all you need. <laughs> all Boom. Right. Number Bob three, your uncle. Number three. Hey guys, this is Kyle Denny in Dallas, Texas. Uh, my question is your thoughts on. Uh, playing in a band where the uh, drums have already been recorded um, and you're out there playing another guy's parts. How do you interpret that? Um, I guess, you know, depending on the band and how flexible they are, do you get to put your own special sauce on that or do you play it as written? And um, also, kind of the flip side of that, um, you record an album with a band or you record some drums for tracks and then you later see that band out there playing uh with a different drummer and how does he interpret that have you ever experienced that and what was that like for you guys thanks a lot kyle that was awesome man and i think that those are really really important questions and very practical because no one teaches you that stuff and all of a sudden you find yourself in that situation so, Mike, what do you have for the first one? Because I think you probably do the first one quite a bit, right? Yeah. A lot of times, uh, stuff that I record on, maybe half the record is done by somebody else. So that's it's very much like I'm playing gigs where I'm doing my own parts and I'm having to learn somebody else's parts. And most of the time, the other guys who are on the record are people that I already admire, like Rich Redman or someone like that. So I take that as an opportunity to study someone else's drumming and to add something. So I actually try to go like as close to note for note as possible for at least the first few gigs. Like I don't, I don't, my knee jerk is not, well, let me put my thing onto it. Cause I think that would be a little bit disrespectful for the song because they spent time crafting it and getting the parts the way they are. So there's probably something in there that maybe even if it doesn't sound logical to you at first, once you dig in, it's probably just something that you just haven't you haven't tried, or, or it would actually improve your own approach. So I try not to change it right away. And then as we play a few shows, there might be some dynamic things or or some fills that kind of need to be amped up, and then then I adjust. But I don't go straight in like let me change it and make it mine just to make it mine. Um, I think that answers. It. I don't know what what was the second half. Yeah. Oh, if someone well, the else second is half playing. is the yeah the flip flop. And I've done that actually, especially when I first came off the road with my band and got back to Sacramento, I ended up being kind of the ghost drummer for the rock genre in Sacramento. Like people were, 
it just would save them time if I came in and did it. And I, for me, I actually always had to meet with the drummer. I had to watch a couple practices and find out, okay, what is your level and where do you kind of top out? Not just stylistically, but I don't want to play something that puts that drummer in a bad spot on their first live gig and they can't play these parts, you know? Interesting. So I'm always kind of listening for the style. But then also, I don't want to drop a bunch of chops and like, I don't want the band to ever say to the drummer, we wish you could do that fill in the second chorus that Mike did. And the drummer's yeah. like, that, dude, I'm not that drummer. I'm a, I'm a Dave Grohl blocky drummer. So I really dig into the, the drummer's style so that I can help make it seamless so that when he plays the shows, everything works fine. Uh, you know, unless it's a situation where I don't know the drummer, you know, if I, if I can't meet the drummer, that's fine. I'm going to play it however the band wants me to play it. But for the most part, I, I try to make it seamless from the album to the live drummer, so there's no questions. Did you go to watch him play? Do you ever see the <laughs> no. end result? <laughs> no. I don't want to put myself in that situation where I'm judging. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I really dislike being in that situation. I don't like when, the, when people in the crowd, if I go to a local show, I don't like people knowing that I'm a drummer. Then they're asking me, so what do you think? It's like, man, I don't want to think. Yeah. I just, I'm just enjoying it. The last thing I want to think is, I don't want to start getting into that world of good and bad and rushing and dragging. It's like, uh, I like this. This is fun. Right. Know? The whole reason I came here was to turn my brain off, so I didn't have to do drum homework. So, yeah. All right. Cool. Question okay. four. This one uh, is coming from Jordan. He didn't. I don't think he identifies himself. So this one's from Jordan. All right. There are a few things that I've pondered regarding certain technique or what have you and spent much time wishing I could just sit at a kit and just rip some tight 7-8 groove like nothing. Wondering how drummers like Chris Coleman or Thomas Lang do those things. And while I know those two are totally inhuman, it hit me recently that you don't just rip a tight 7-8 groove out of nowhere. I think you have to write and work on a 7-8 groove that then you can apply that or variations of that to your playing. I poured over something that had such a seemingly simple answer. So my question is, what have you two poured over that one day when you thought about it a little harder or intently, you thought to yourself, ah, that's the answer. I was way overthinking it. Oh, man. So I'm going to have to quote another uh, silly comedy. There's Joe Dirt. <laughs> there's, yeah. a, there's a great <laughs> Joe Dirt quote, Dirt quote where he says, you can wish in one hand and crap in the other and see which one fills up first. <laughs> that that, that, that kind of answers the question. You can wish for stuff all you want, but... It's like buying a lottery ticket. You're just not going to get it. You're yeah, just not going to yeah. get it. You've got to yeah. put in the work. And I can tell you this. You know, uh, I know Chris. And I know Thomas both, and and they they work as hard and as tirelessly as anyone in the world. And so when you see what you see, you just have to remember Jordan that you didn't get to see the practice that went into it. I guarantee if if Chris is playing something in six eight seven eight nine eight. Then it probably started with a groove, and that became for him a groove environment that he stayed in for hours and hours and hours and explored that environment so, and probably did that for weeks on end, if not months and years on end, so that when he got on the stage at a clinic and just said, Well, let me mess around in 6 8, in 7 8, it just came out naturally and, and just flowed. But it didn't start that way. And I'm, I'm in the same boat for sure with that stuff. I always, if I learn something new, I remember learning a songo and there was probably like a good three years where a songo for me was the two, three songo that was taught in every book. But if you asked me to change one accent, the whole thing fell apart. Right. And I didn't realize that the songo could be a groove environment that I could explore and I could mess around with. And I, I had to find then, okay, well, then what are the primary notes of this groove that shouldn't be changed so that I can stay in this environment? I'm not just leaving it all together and going from songo into what is hit by Tower of Power, you know. But, right. but all that Garibaldi stuff worked great in the songo as long as I kept the primary notes of the songo together and kept the feel of the groove Yes, so his question was, what have we kind of pondered over that we thought was just overthinking? Um, 
I kind of think that's just a process of growing up and becoming an adult. So, like, college is the perfect time when you're questioning everything and you're wondering about everything. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Like, that's yeah. the, that for me, that was it. Like, 19 to 25 was like, why am I on earth? Why am I doing this? Why did I pick the drums? Why does Brian Blade sound good and I sound bad? Like, all this stuff. And that was probably the one thing that I pondered the most, the it factor. Like, what yeah. is the it factor? And it's and it was a silly, stupid question because there is no definition. It's, yeah. just, it's just people who, who play from their heart and play with passion in whatever way they do it with no questions yeah. and no doubt. I'm in the same boat. My My journey, I would say the thing that I pondered over way too much was, who am I as an artist? Because I knew for a long time that I was hiding behind the fact that I was a teacher. Like, oh, I'm a teacher. I don't have to play. I don't have to be an artist. But that was a lie. And, and that is true if that's how you feel. But I didn't feel that way. I liked playing the drums. I like, I want to be an artist. So the one thing that was amazing was having somebody like Russ Miller just pull my brain out of the way. And just say, dude, could you just stop thinking for five seconds and play drum set? <laughs> right. And Yost, Yost did it to me, too. When Yost was here, he said, okay, just play something for me. And as soon as I started playing, he said, no, don't do that. That's a lick. You practice that. I want you to play drum set. And I'd play, and I'd get maybe 10 seconds deep. And then he's like, nope, stop. That's a predetermined lick. You practice that. I want <laughs> you to play the drums. And it took, I mean, it, he stopped me probably 15 times before I was able to even get 30 seconds deep without playing a memorized lick that I had practiced 2,000 times. That's a great lesson yeah. right there. It was pretty cool. And because he sounds like, he never sounds like he's playing a lick. He just sounds like he's having a conversation on the instrument. And that took, you know, and we have those examples. We have Miles Davis telling his band, you know, don't bring that stuff to the stage. Yeah. So right. we know it, but we don't know it until we go through it. So I definitely pondered over that way too much. Who am I as an artist? And eventually I thought, okay, it's funny because I can teach it in camp all day, but doing it yourself is a little bit different. I had to get to that point where I just trusted I've practiced. I, I've put in the time I've practiced. Whatever happens, happens. Of course, I'll always wish it was better, but it's time to just, it's time to just speak. Yeah. And that's another question that you can't answer. Who am I as an artist? Well, you're Mike Johnston. It's not up to you to define what you are. Exactly. That's for what everyone else to define from the outside. I, I just heard, and I'm sure this is a, a very overused quote, but I, I was showing the campers. There's a documentary called Music by, I think it's Andrew Zuckerman. And it's all these famous musicians just talking about what music means to them, what inspiration means to them. And of all people, it was Kenny Rogers who got up and said, he said, I believe there's three of us. There's the people, there's there's the version of us that we think we are, there's the version of us that everyone else thinks we are, and then there's a the version of us that we really are. And as long as those three are somewhat close together, you're going to be fine. But oh, if those great. three are completely out of whack, then someone's lying to someone else. So That's great. And it was like, yeah, Kenny Rogers, I'm, <laughs> I, I agree. And, <laughs> and I think I could adjust a couple of those. I could adjust the one that I think I am to be a little bit closer to the one that I really am. And, and so, yeah, it was a pretty good thing. So, Jordan... Get your head out of the way, buddy. All right, so let's number five. Hey, Mike and Mike, happy 50th. This is Lou. My question is, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you on a gig? Thanks. Well, that was easy. Nice, quick, simple question from Montuli. Well, how about you, buddy? What do you got? I couldn't, you know, it's funny. I couldn't come up with any, like, you know, my pants fell down kind of experience, but... <laughs> Dude. I think there's been a couple of times when I was over cocky and ended up playing in front of someone that was way better than me. And I just choked like I that's definitely happened on occasion. My jazz band opened for Maynard Ferguson's band once um, and the drummer who was he went to the same college as me, but was a few years older. And now he's been touring like with uh, the Dap Kings and, and all that. kind. Of, he's a he's a he's an absolute badass. So okay. I was up there just fumbling through what I thought was good modern jazz and he goes on stage and just lays it down and, and it's and he's the humblest nicest guy and he never would say a mean thing but I could just tell that he was like uh, that was cute go practice kid <laughs> <laughs> I've had that happen way too many times oh, it's just the worst especially when it's somebody you kind of respect and you just you don't want to stop them in the middle of their compliment but you're like just stop like yeah it we both sucked. know what just happened. <laughs> yeah. Stop. Just, just, just walk by me, please. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. I've had, yours. I've had some train wrecks, man. Uh, yeah. I was opening for Primus at the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, 
and it was a because we were not this the normal term that you use for backline, but we were backlined literally, where the band sets up behind the the headliner. So the headliner's gear is at the front of the stage, and we're set up behind that gear so that they don't have to strike the headliner's gear. And that that actually happens a lot in big tours. Really, uh, that's pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. So there's a drum set in front of your drum set. There's bass cabs in front of your bass player. I have never so, seen that. That's insane. Really? Yeah. Wow. I think it's just a time-saving technique for the for the bands of the 90s. So I was as as back as you could be at this theater, and I'm doing my windmills and moving my arms like crazy, and I hooked the bottom of the stage curtain with my stick, and I brought the entire 4,000-pound curtain over my head, and it went over me like a fishnet in Scooby-Goo, <laughs> Scooby-Doo, and I had no shirt on because I was all sweaty, and... So yeah, I just and so I went face first into the mics and there's this fishnet over me and I'm going like, "Oh lord, help, jeez, lord, help me." And like I'm just flailing around and then I finally get the damn thing off of me and I look around and Tim Alexander's there just laughing his ass off. That's and, amazing. Yeah, it wasn't and I was like, "Oh, that sucked." Uh, <laughs> and then probably like the most embarrassing moment of my entire life was uh we were we were out uh, in Europe doing some festival tours and we were out with uh Foo Fighters Limp Bizkit and Deftones, I think. So it was hot. It was summer. I had, you know, whatever, Ben Davies or Dickies on or whatever. And I just didn't think that underwear was that important because it was hot. It was really hot. <laughs> and so anyways, we played our show. I come into the bus uh, and it was like the hang bus. So there's a couple of the drummers from the tour. There's a couple of singers and there's a lot of not males. So a lot of females. <laughs> and... So John Otto from Limp Bizkit, he's like, what's up, man? And I'm like, what is up? I'm feeling good. You know, I got my shirt off. I'm glistening. And he's like, a little windy? And I'm like, no, nah, it's good. I just was hot, man. And he's like, you don't feel any draft? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and then he goes, and then he's looking right at my crotch. And I'm like, oh, God, please tell me my zipper isn't open. So I'm... <laughs> And swear to God, dude, it was just like, what's up, ladies? And I have no idea how I didn't feel it. And I was, I must have turned like the most, I'm probably turning red right now (laughs) thinking about it. It was so embarrassing. And I, and everyone is just staring at my junk. Ugh. I, I just wanted to quit the tour. I was like, "Can oh, I just go home?" I just want to get go. escorted out by the police. I know. I <laughs> could. It was just like the inquisitive look on his face of like, "Really? You don't feel any extra wind somewhere?" I'm like, "Nope. Just happy to be here with my shirt off and my junk out." All, All right. right, number six. Thanks for bringing that up, Lou. Let's get into number six. Hello, Mike and Mike. First of all, big drum bro hugs from up here in Canada. My name is Michael Beachy. Uh, I'm an online student with Mike Johnston, and I'm a big fan of the work that both of you do. Your dedication to music and your knowledge about it seems like every possible aspect of drumming is really inspiring. TGIF to me means it's podcast day, and that's my favorite day of the week. My question is this. When you study multiple instruments or musical genres at the same time, what have you found to be the most efficient way to schedule your practicing time? And how do you relate it to the scheduled lessons you take? Do you ramp it up uh, on the days before the lesson, or do you t- spread it all out equally through the day and the week? Once again, thanks so much for your really inspiring uh, example of dedication to, to music and pursuit of excellence, for sure. Take care. Bye-bye. This is a good question because this question actually caused like probably our first ever disagreement when Michael was asking. He asked earlier in the podcast a few episodes ago about studying with multiple teachers and studying oh, right. different topics. That's and right. I was like, I was like, just stick with one thing. And you were like, I couldn't agree less. And yeah. I, I remember looking up at the camera like, what? <laughs> Shan't you? Uh, so why don't you give your opinion on this first, buddy? Yeah, I think it's. It's it's tough because everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to be at a different level. If you're if you're studying jazz and you're studying Latin music, well, you're obviously going to be better at one than you are at the other. And there's going to be technical things you have to address. But in general, I would say what I would do at this point in my playing is I would focus my hardcore practicing on any kind of technical independence issues that'll be kind of universal for all of the styles: left foot independence, um, whatever it is ghost notes uh, right hand variations whatever would be kind of universal and then just make sure you play along with some of your favorite recordings of each genre every day 
like maybe just pick one or two tracks. So then you're at least absorbing the style a little bit more every day. But I don't know that I would just practice like beyond bop page 10 one day and then uh, right. Chuck Silverman's Afro-Cuban exercises on page 15 on Tuesday. I don't think that's a good usage of time. Yeah, but, and I think I think as well, like, you know, creating a practice schedule that fits all of that stuff in to your day is awesome. But the other thing is allow for a little bit of enjoyment in the practice where sometimes things happen when I'm practicing where I'm like, man, I am so into this that I'm going to, this is going to be the rest of my day. Cause I'm really getting somewhere. I'm really making, I'm not making the normal amount of progress. I'm really moving forward with this. And I think it's okay to allow for a little bit of that as well. Question seven. Hey guys. Uh, this is Jason Mullenbach from middle of nowhere, Illinois, a long time listener, first time caller. Uh, I'm glad you're taking these audio questions because there's this drum lick that every drummer seems to know except for me and i have no idea how to describe it other than to play a clip of it for you uh so here it is did you hear that off time lick in the middle of the fill there I've heard different drummers play that kind of a variation, uh, usually in a jazz setting at the beginning of a fill, and usually for no more than a beat or two. Uh, I was just wondering, is it just an exaggeration of the swing feel within within that song, or is it actually a change of notation or a change of time? Thanks. That was cool. That was our first like audio yeah. drum clip from somebody. That was great. And we got... I was hoping we'd get one, but we got first-time caller, long-time listener type thing. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Just want to talk about LeBron James. I think he's going to be sticking with Cleveland this year. I'm glad he got his championship. I'll take your answers off the air. Thanks a lot. Yeah, um, yeah so, I mean, I, if I identified what he's talking about, I think he's just talking about that was just straight eighth-note triplets, right? But just... It just sounded like one and uh, two and uh, three and uh, four. Yeah, uh, it, I think it's that that Brazilian thing where it could be a, a sixteenth and an eighth note and a sixteenth, but just elongated. Sure. Yeah, it out. Yeah, it's it's taking the one e a two e and the one and a two and and then finding the grease right in between those two. And that's I remember Will Kennedy telling me. He's like, I can't tell you what to do other than you have to fellowship with the music until you hear this a trillion times because it's not you can't notate this. It's like right. you would have to notate it either the way that you said and then write the word greasy over the top. <laughs> right. You know, or in between the cracks or I mean, that's what that stuff is where it, it just can't be notated that way. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think that the cool thing with that is, you know, you can hear it. So it's like you just sit there and do it. I mean, yeah. I know that it's funny as soon as it happens, like I don't see that as being alternating. I see like you dragging into the right and then you just keep nailing the right. And then it went into like right when he cut out the clip, it went into like a, a New Orleans feel. So, yeah. I mean, that would fit perfect with that. So if you start listening to some meters and stuff like that, you're going to hear more of that. But that's funny that you and I both hear it. From, like I hear it from the full on just gong 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 way, and then you hear it in the dun 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 dun, and then yeah. we finally we meet in the middle. It's exactly find, in the middle, yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I, I hope that helps, buddy. And I, I think both of, our, of us probably have the same advice for you: is mimic it. That's how we learned most of the things that we can do. You yeah, just you mimic just gotta it. sing along, play along, get it to match up perfectly, and worry about how to write it later. But it is cool that your ear is identifying things like that because those are those are the fun licks for sure. Much yeah. cooler than just like a show-off lick. All right, on number to question eight. number eight. Hey, Mike and Mike. Buck August here. I have a quick question for you guys. I've had a few people recently ask me about doing drum lessons for their kids. They're typically younger kids, elementary school age. And I'm wondering what a good book would be to work through with the kids to provide some structure and to keep us moving forward. Appreciate your thoughts, and I love the podcast. Always look forward to it. It makes Fridays even better. Take it easy, guys. That's so cool to hear these people's voices because we know their names. I mean, I actually got to have Buck in camp recently, and he's just an incredible, incredible person and drummer as well. But it's just great to hear these people's voices. So, Sweet. And it's nice to hear that we're helping people's Friday. 
Yeah, right. I mean, so do you think this just becomes full time? We just do five. <laughs> we go Monday through Friday, five a week. <laughs> oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust me, I'm with you, bro. I don't have the time for that. But uh, so, what do you have for for that? Uh, well, we actually publish a book by Rich Redmond and Michael Albrecht called "Fundamentals of Drumming for Kids." That Perfect. is designed for ages like I think it's five to ten year olds or something like that. So it's. That's that would be it. It comes with a DVD. It comes with, I mean, a pretty good method to combine visual aids and different ways of counting and different ways to read rhythms that aren't traditional notation. So that's that's just a pretty solid reference. And then I'm sure there's other versions of that by other publishers. But yeah, it's called Fundamentals of Drumming for Kids by Rich Redman and Michael Albrecht. Boom! I couldn't agree more. That's perfect. All right, number oh, ten, yeah. number nine. I said that, number nine. God, <laughs> your Skype connection's bad. <laughs> hey, Mike and Mike. It is Sam here from Australia. I just want to say I love the podcast. Thank you for doing what you do. It brings great enjoyment and insight to me and I'm sure a lot of other people. Uh, my question is, did you try any other instruments before starting to learn the drums what were they? Why did you choose them? And maybe why um, why couldn't you or why didn't you continue on with, with those other instruments? Uh, I, I'd love just to hear a bit of a background in, in that area and, and I guess the reason why you ended up finding yourself learning the drums. Unless, you know, the drums were the first thing you started with um, and then that would be cool to know just why you chose the drums anyway. Nice. Sam from Australia. That's really cool. Yeah, cool question too. It's a great question. What about you, bud? <clears throat> you know, my mom wanted me to take piano lessons, but I refused to, and I wish I would have. So I, I, I should have started with piano, and I didn't. But I tried my dad's acoustic guitar when I was really young, and I couldn't push the strings down, so that just got rid of that option. It was so frustrating. I'd see him and my brother jamming, and I'd go to try to play, and I, could, I just couldn't even push the freaking strings down. So guitar was wow. gone out the window. Not, not ever an option. I'm just now finally coming back to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually wanted to play, because I had a drum set in fourth grade, and then we got to band in fifth grade. I actually wanted to play saxophone. Mm. Um, but when we went around, when they brought in all the instruments during music class and they let you try stuff out, the uh, the buzzing of the mouthpiece just drove me insane. So that was gone. <laughs> that was out the window. Flute gave me a headache. That was out the window. The only non-percussive instrument that I could stand was trombone. Really? Like the buzzing of the mouthpiece wasn't like trumpet. You have to really buzz really fast, and it, it drove me nuts. Trombone is kind of a slower buzz, and that kind of felt kind of cool, and, and I felt like I could do it. I could make the sound. I like the slide. But the band director needed drummers, so he said, you're going to be the drummer. Wow. You already have a drum set, so you're going to be the drummer. So I owe my entire career to a man, Dennis Fraley, who basically forced me to be a drummer in fifth grade band. Man. I uh, mine is the exact same story. Fourth grade band, Mr. Baker, Rick Baker, uh, has a son the exact same age as me, and we competed against each other for first chair our entire school career. I really did not like him as a human being. Now I do. He's very cool. But he was. I was like, well, I'd be that good too if my dad was a music teacher. But uh, yeah, I started out on clarinet and fourth grade played clarinet for couple weeks and every time we would work on whole notes i would pass out and go face first down into the ground and he's like you're gonna impale yourself on your on your mouthpiece (laughs) get back there on the drums and uh so i just uh that was it they gave me a bass drum mallet and i played bass drum first song i ever learned for school band concert for winter concert was louis louis and i just went doom 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 and then I just envied the crap out of Candace Alpert because she got to hold drumsticks and she played ride cymbal and snare drum while I played the bass drum part. Did I ever tell and you that my first drum set performance was Louie Louie? Shut up. Fifth grade band. Fourth grade band. <laughs> wow. <laughs> my goodness. I even had a four bar drum solo in it towards the end. I didn't. <laughs> I just played the bass drum with my knee on it. Oh man, that is so cool! That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, there's a there's a VHS floating around somewhere. Me with my oversized sweater and my black hot sticks playing the yeah, buddy Tama Rockstar drum kit doing Louie Louie. My parents <laughs> wouldn't even buy me sticks because they're like, "Be honest, you don't really play drums. We'll buy we'll buy you a bass drum mallet, but what are you gonna do with the sticks?" I'm like, "Good point, Ma." Oh that's my awesome. goodness, that's so cool. So yeah, I, uh, but and then after that, the only I did try piano. 
and it just didn't work. I have trained that my thumb and my first finger on both hands have a lot of mobility, and then the next three fingers move the stick all as one flap. So mm. when I would work on scales, it was like note, note, clang, and I just <laughs> hit three notes at once, and I was like, okay, I'm done with this. Uh, but yeah, I've never I, – I honestly – just feel like I'm so far behind on the instrument that I play. I can't really entertain practicing something else right now. So although I know it would help me, I do wish I played piano. But the other thing is I'm also not playing in bands. So I don't need that empathetic nature to understand what the bass player is going through, what the guitar player is going through. So maybe that's another reason why I stayed away from other instruments too. So great question, Sam. All right. Now are we on number 10? Yep. Number 10. Boom. Hey guys, this is Matt or Dawes from Southern California. Uh, really big fan of the podcast, and I've been learning from Mike Johnston since before he started the live lessons way back uh, when I was in high school. And anyway, really enjoying the new site, Mike. It's really awesome, easily able to track my progress, and uh, really can feel some growth already in just this last month or so. Uh, so thank you for that. Anyway, on to my question. Uh, I've got a student who's been taking lessons from me for almost a year. He has a slight learning disability which is making it hard to teach reading, but he's coming along into that. Anyway, I'm having trouble getting him to hear the difference between different grooves that he plays on the drum set. Uh, For example, playing the bass drum on three and, as opposed to and three, there's no way, every time he tries to play one of the two, he looks up at me as if to say, is this the right one? And he can't tell the difference. I've tried playing the two back-to-back on the drum set and kind of, you know, raise your hand when you hear groove A, and he still has trouble hearing that difference. So I wonder if you guys had any pointers or tips on how to deal with that kind of situation. Uh, I've tried to come at it from a bunch of different angles, but can't seem to come up with any way to help him progress. Um, Yeah, would love to hear any help you have on that subject. Thanks, guys. Wow, what an in-depth question. Matt, it's good to hear from you, buddy, and I'm glad you like the new site. So with that, you know, it's funny, that exact example you used, that was almost the reason I quit playing drums. I was pretty young, about fifth, sixth grade is when I actually got my first drum set and started playing drum set. And I played the basic bass drum on one and three, fine. I put bass drum on one and and three and, fine. As soon as I had to do one and three, literally i could not get the snare the distance of the snare correct anymore it threw Mm -hmm. everything off and i spent an entire summer working on one groove and this is when this is actually the people have heard me mention it before but i talk about how my private drum instructor kicked me out of lessons just telling my parents your son just doesn't practice and i don't want to i don't want to waste anyone's time or money and i was putting in four or five hours a day and he was like how could somebody not learn one beat if they were practicing four hours a day and it just it was the biggest mental block ever (laughs) and i just I, I realized I'm not meant for this instrument. So I totally identify with your student. That that exact groove really messed me up. So one thing you could do, Matt, is don't stick on something. If it's not happening, there's so much to learn in the drums. Just move on. Sometimes you just have to move on. And maybe you can circle back around to this later. And when your student has a better understanding of rhythm, it's going to really click. The other thing you could do is try to get that rhythm somewhere else on the instrument. Maybe make them play it on the snare drum and go... You know, so on the snare, they're going one, two, three, and four, one, two, three, and then, then they're going one, two, and three, four, one, two, and three. And if you can get them to count out loud while doing it, you know, it's, it's hard to give you exact advice because I'm not in the room with you and your student, which you said has a slight learning disability. But I mean, I've done a million things with students where I'm like, okay, this isn't going to happen this week or this month. So we'll come back to it someday. So what about you, bud? No, <clears throat> that's kind of it. I was going to say just make sure you're counting out loud. Um, I would maybe try to find a recording of some simple music that has that beat and just give it to them and say, listen to this and try to play along to it and just let it go. Just let it go because there's going to be, I mean, it's it's for me, it was learning how to do four over three. It was just one of those things where I just needed months to just let my body absorb it. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a great thing, Matt. I mean, you have a chance right now to go back in your own personal timeline and don't think about how you would do it now. Think about how you felt then. And when you mentioned that story, 
I was instantly seven years old again. I remember staying the entire summer at my grandmother's because she had broken her arm and I was kind of taking care of her. And so I have an instant memory of how I felt in that moment. And that's what I'm imprinting on the students. I'm not telling them how I would do it now. I have to go back in time and remember when my limbs just wouldn't listen to me. So great question, man. You ready for number 11? Yep. Hey, Mike and Mike. This is Nick Murray from New York calling to ask a question about right-hand jazz technique. I'm looking to get that fast bop swing pattern speed, kind of like Max Roach has and like the Clifford Brown recordings and such. Uh, I've been a jazz drum set player for years, and I've really tried to build up the speed of the swing pattern, but at a certain metronome mark, I have to just stop because I can see my my technique is going out the window and I'm starting to tense up. Is there like a common technique that drummers use to play faster bop tunes that I'm just missing out on or what? Right, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this one. And uh, as always, you know, I love the show and thank you so much for helping me stay in the loop. Uh, shout out Poughkeepsie, New York. Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's and a I'm good question. That's a great question. Uh, I, as Especially as a rock drummer, I had to go through that too when people would call tunes that they just assumed, well, I'm sure you can play this. Cherokee, one, two, one, two. Mm. And I'm like, oh, dear. and then I get arm pump, and that, now I'm just yep. like barely getting in the quarter notes to stay in time. <laughs> so it is hard, and I'll let you answer this question because you deal with it a lot more than I do, but it is hard to answer any technique questions without seeing your technique because if I could see you play, then I would obviously be able to say, oh, maybe try this. But w- what do you think, bud? Well, I mean, I think first of all, I would I would probably guess that you have good enough technique to do it. You're just not allowing your body to just chill out and flow. So, I mean, yeah. if you look at um, watch a video of Art Blakey, he has terrible technique, but he could play 350, 400 BPM because at a certain tempo, you're you're literally just playing half notes and letting the stick bounce. You have to just let it bounce and get your fingers out of the way. Some people call it like uh, jellyfish fingers. Right, where the stick just has to float. So if you're if you're holding if you're squeezing at that tempo, it's never going to happen. It almost has to be like you're not even touching the stick. You just right. you're throwing it down and it just bounces. So it's a controlled rebound thing. Definitely check out Jojo Mayer's uh, Technique DVD. Um, right, yeah. he addresses all that stuff. But really, for me, it was like just not thinking about it, just relaxing, not trying to count the quarter notes, but try to count the half notes or maybe even the whole notes. And just one motion, drop the stick, get three notes out of it. Drop the stick, get yeah. three notes out of it. That Billy Ward thing, big time, really helped me with that. Because mm-hmm. as soon as ding, jigga, ding, jigga, ding became one, jigga, ding, 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 jigga, two, jigga, ding, jigga. Then, I mean, I was just like, oh, here we go. I'm floating. So I went through that with, I think that DVD, it's called Big Time by Billy Ward. That will help you on the mental approach to it. The other thing is, I know when I had to play those quick tunes, in my past, because I, I did do the jazz thing quite a bit, it just never really clicked for me. But I, I always knew that I could break up the pattern. I didn't go ding jigga ding jigga ding. I went ding jigga ding 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 jigga ding jigga ding jigga ding ding jigga ding ding. And even those like you know two beat breaks gave my hand a little enough rest that I could keep through the song. Yeah. So and I also never felt bad about playing quarter notes. Uh, yeah. Is I just had to keep time. There were times where I had to like make it. Ding, then left foot was the two, chick, ding, ding, oh, and wow, then chick. Yeah. So ding, chick, ding, chick, ding, chick, ding, because <laughs> I just couldn't play, you know, that fast. And, and it's like, and what are you going to do? You, you can't slow down. Yeah. I actually, I don't think I really had as much right hand problem as my left foot hurt playing those really quick tempo tunes. Huh. Um, I had, a, and I think it's probably because I, I'm also playing the note in between. So I'm not just playing two and four, I'm playing quarter notes with my foot and I'm letting the audience hear two and four. So, yeah, my, my shin was on fire at the end of, like, <laughs> Cherokee. So, yeah, but I think that's a, a great thing that Mike said. Just allow the stick to bounce in your hand. And the end result is more important than the technique. Yep. You know, so. All right. Number 12. Hi, Mike and Mike. My name is Rigo Araujo. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. I have a two-part question for you, and it's in regards to finished drum tracks for modern music. I'd like to know to what extent drums are being quantized and or being augmented with drum samples for these uh, finished drum tracks. I'd also be interested in knowing what your opinion is on quantizing finished drum tracks uh, for music nowadays. I know some of it is probably genre-specific, but quantizing can also tend to suck the life out of some of the drum tracks. 
But then again, a lot of the modern music, I think our ears have grown accustomed to hearing uh, the drum parts precisely in time. So I'd like to know what your opinion is on quantizing drums. Thanks. Man, that could be question. a that could be a whole hour. I don't want to go too deep into my my thoughts on that. <laughs> rip rip everybody up, Mike. <laughs> I think you know what for me, it's when it's just done out of um, expectation and when it's done out of just laziness that it really pisses me off. Yeah, like it I, pisses me off if it's a bailout. Like, don't yeah. worry, man, it's fine. We'll fix it in the mix. And I think oh. modern rock is the most guilty of it, where they're like, we have to have that. I mean. I would rather hear something quantized with no samples than something that's not quantized with the bass drum replaced and it sounds like I can tell that's a Stephen Slate sample from this library. Like I can right. hear that stuff immediately and it it drives me bonkers. Like that yeah. as soon as I hear it I'm like that's not a human being. Like yeah. I, I why did you even go being. into the studio? Like why even yeah. just take your Roland and just trigger the whole damn thing, you know? Yeah, I mean it's so it for me, it comes down to: Is it done for an artistic purpose, or is it done because you think that's what you have to do, and that's what what is expected of you? Or are you just conforming to the the standards? Right. I mean, yeah, I, I could go on and on and on about it. I I don't like it. I don't I'm, like. I'm it with at you. All. I'm with you. I mean, that's that's what allows us to fall in love with our favorite drummers is we hear their nuances. When I can't hear your nuances, how can I like you? And I remember yeah. it's funny. I remember Buddy Rich has a huge thing about that where. He's like, I can't tell you who's on what album anymore. I used to be able to hear an album tell you right away that's Louis Belson. Right away yeah. that's Gene Krupa. He's like, I don't know who the hell's on any of these records. They all got the same drum set. They all tune them exactly the same. Yep. And he's all pissed off about it. But I'm sure that was, that was the uh, Yamaha recording custom kit. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. he's talking at a time where I actually thought you could totally hear the differences. Yeah. I'm like, we'll oh, see how far we've come. I mean, yeah. I, I bet you can't put on a modern rocker or a modern country station and not hear Stephen Slate drums on every single song if you don't it's like wow that's not the same snare drum that's not the black beauty sample that everyone is using that's not the yeah. uh, kick drum one that or the bottom kick drum that everyone's using like so yeah i caution against it uh just to try to feel like you're competing with some sort of imaginary standard like metal bands are really bad with it too it's like oh my gosh yeah if you have to quantize it here's my thoughts on on metal <laughs> the Bro, music. I the, love this. I just music, love watching you get hot. <laughs> that music, its entire existence is on pushing the physical boundaries of your instruments to a new plane. Yes. Like heavy metal, like it's I'm talking, jazz of rock. Yeah, I mean you're you're playing double bass really fast to to showcase an emotion, a sort of intensity. So that if you then go in and cut it all up and quantize it and replace it with tune tracks drum kit from hell samples i i know my computer can play faster than that so why are you turning yourself into a computer i mean i can i can yeah. go in and program a drum part and turn it up to 500 bpm right who cares right so that's my issue with with metal i would rather hear dave lombardo be sloppy at 200 and have it just be a visceral like he's just gone for something than to hear yeah you know BFD snares and BFD kick drums <laughs> quantized at 300 BPM and, and the guitars have been quantized and there's no air in the music. I'm like, right. what's the point? If I want to listen to a computer make blips and bleeps, I'll just, blips. I'll just, you know, <laughs> anyway, rant over, rant over. I, I want to hear metal bands play their instruments. Right. No, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. And, and I think, like he said, for, for modern music, some of the dance stuff, some of the pop stuff, I, I get it. I mean, it's it's literally just four on the floor the whole time, and, and that's fine. But I don't listen to a Taylor Swift record and, and try to think, like, the nuance of the drummer. Honestly, the drums aren't even on my mind. It's it's more of, like, just a beat. But I don't even know where it's coming from. I don't know if anybody played it. I, I think probably one of the last records <clears throat> that really... Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, I knew there was a drummer on it. And I knew it wasn't the same drummer on every track. And I was like, wow, this is... and. And unfortunately, that, I think that might have been the last record that she really had a, a real band on. And then it got very synthesized. And I lost all of my fandom for it. Because I remember hearing, I think Flea was on that album. Uh, yeah, right. Playing bass. And and then uh, Sarah Borales has done some stuff where Matt Chamberlain was on it recently. Where I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, you don't have to do the electronic thing. And yeah. so, I, I'm, I'm with you, buddy. All right. Next. Number 13. Hi, guys. My name's Alan Isaacson. 
my question for you is related, kind of, to an album I've been re-listening to, which is Power Windows by Rush from 1985. As a fan of Rush, I can listen to the album and enjoy the album, but I kind of feel like the album stands on its own with just the drumming. So, I guess my question is three-part. One, have you guys listened to the album? What do you think? Two, why do you feel like Neil seems to be getting kind of a bad rap in the modern drumming world? And three, is there anything from the early to mid-80s that you would recommend to listen to that you kind of feel like just stands on the drumming alone? Thanks a lot. Great question. So are, are you a Rush fan? I actually don't know that. Not not particularly. I went through a minor Rush phase. Um, like I got into them from MTV, so not from like my uncle or anything like that. Okay, I, I saw it. them during the Presto era and, and, and Roll the Bones and Counterparts. Like those three records were the ones I was really into. Then I went back and investigated them. But I'm current. I mean, I never went. I'm never like stuck on the rush thing because i just don't play that kind of music where that where that approach to drumming that real kind of orchestrated lots of drums and stuff that just never falls into my world but i think that the the era of of giving neil a bad rap is over i mean they just they're in the rock and roll hall of fame yeah he's been on the cover of our magazine like nine times and he's the the highest seller ever in our magazine's covers so i think and most drummers acknowledge that he's badass i don't i think that that was maybe like a 90s kind of post-punk kind of anti-neil peart phase but i think in general everyone just knows that he's great and for what he did and that band changed people's lives and whether or not you like the music is is your own personal taste but i don't think he gets a bad just like ringo like you can't give ringo a bad rap anymore just no i i think i think the people that do that just haven't gotten far enough on that instrument to realize maybe they don't know enough about the history maybe they've never tried to play a rush song maybe they're i mean it's awesome to watch somebody that considers himself an advanced drummer try to play a beatles song right you aren't even (laughs) close bro and and they're like realizing uh this is like impossible i'm like yeah I know yeah. it's really hard, and because they were just thinking like licks and chops, and I think with Neil, the the rap comes from the fact that he pushed the boundaries so far, so fast, and changed the game on such a monumental level that when it stopped happening, that's when the rap started. Like, wait, why are you just now playing Tom Sawyer the way that Tom Sawyer has always been played? Why are you not pushing the envelope anymore? Yeah, and I think you know I, you can think like that, or you can just think of wow. You got that stuff on the radio, dude. Right. It's not like it hadn't Hits. been done. I mean, we yeah. have, yeah, we had great fusion bands of the seventies, but he he was he was in Tool before Tool came along. He was yeah. in the Dave Matthews Band before the Dave Matthews Band came along. It's like you yeah. got to do the coolest drumming on the planet on the freaking radio, yeah. and that opened up everything for everyone else. So I I I think we all owe a huge gratitude to Neil. What about your? Uh, do you have your eighties drum album? Yeah, I was. Um I would say any police record and anything yeah. with Jeff Picaro on it, you could you could strip away. In fact, I mean, I might rather hear Toto with just the drums, quite frankly. Bro, yeah. I don't want to get into it, but <laughs> amen, brother Ben shot a goose, killed a hen, let's eat. I, I totally mean, agree with Rosanna that. Rosanna as a drum track is, I mean, I could listen to it on repeat all day in any Absolutely. police record because Stuart just is constantly adding. You'll be able to hear all the little nuances and stuff that he's, he's adding in. So that would Agreed. be mine. Any police record, any Toto record. Done. I think we both agree with that. And I definitely agree with one of those would be better without the band. And number 14. <laughs> Let's give it a listen. Hi, my name is Ryan Halsey. Uh, I'm from the UK. And I was wondering if you could offer any advice about how to encourage students to practice more at home in between lessons. I find uh, in the lessons themselves, they work really hard and they always seem to enjoy themselves um but when i catch up with them the week after they admit themselves that they don't practice as much as even they would like to um i'm just wondering what kind of tips or tools that i could try and help bring across into their own lives when they're at home away from me at lessons 
That's a that's a great question. It's an age old question for all teachers of musical mm-hmm. instruments. Yeah, I I think it's really hard to get, especially younger students, to practice because what's happening is you have two phases of guilt going on as a teacher. One, you're comparing them to you, and you if you're a drum teacher, that means that you were way into drums as a kid and you couldn't be taken off the <laughs> drum set, and you're not able to understand why this kid doesn't feel the same way. The other thing is you're getting paid to teach this kid, so you have a, this guilt of, man, the kid never practices. The parents are going to figure out pretty soon that I'm a fraud, and they're going to take the kid away, right. and you don't want that. So you've got those two things weighing down on you, but you also have to understand – Kids have pretty crazy lives sometimes. Sometimes you have a kid that goes to school as soon as he wakes up, as soon as he's done with school, he's got soccer practice. They take him from soccer practice to his brother's swim meet. After the swim meet, they have family dinner. Then he's got two hours of homework, and then he goes to bed. So even though they're a kid and they don't have jobs, they still have really busy lives. And so it's really important to dig into the kid's life and find out where would we put this practice. The one thing I've always done with my students is I, I map out their day and I insert their practice into that day. And I say, you will be practicing on Tuesday at 5.45 p.m. until 6.30 p.m. That is your practice time. And there's no negotiation. And now, do they do it all the time? No. They're kids. So right. I'm also waiting. I have this thing called the Christmas test where every year at Christmas I ask my students, what are you asking for for Christmas? And they always say Xbox and whatever and new cell phone and when they mention something drum related then i know they're hooked as soon as the the world has been advertising every cool thing on the planet to them and they choose a zildjian crash symbol then i know that they're hooked and so and then i turn up the heat as a teacher then it's like okay you're in now i'm in oh interesting i dig that yeah buddy yeah i mean i think if you can get 10 minutes a day out of a young student that's a success i I mean i I think we put too much expectations on i mean even thinking about my own life i didn't there were many practice charts in middle school that I that I f- filled out like I lied about the time because I just right. you know and I and I ended up being a professional drummer so like ten minutes a day I think that kind of that's a kind of about all you're going to get out of a of a young child for sure absolutely and if you get more than it's a bonus but right now your job especially with the kids is to keep them interested in the drums so that when they're thirteen and fourteen and somebody's like oh you play the drums that's so cool they go yes I do and then they get hooked. You're, you're just trying to keep them from quitting right now, so just keep it fun. All right, number 14 for Mr. Ryan Halsey. 15. Four, what? That or was, was that, Ryan? That was 14. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I even know Ryan. That's even worse. Uh, Todd Mitchell coming to us with number 15. Hey, Mike. Mike, love the podcast, guys. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this every week for us. Quick question for you. Is there yet an app that compares to the TuneBot in any way? Thanks. Appreciate the info. That's a great question. And uh, Todd was just at camp, too, so he got to use the TuneBot for sure. Oh, cool. And, and we know that there's the TuneBot app, you know, already. But yeah. there is a tuning app, I remember. And the only problem I had with it was I had to – it was really hard to tune while holding my phone near the drum. Where the yeah. TuneBot just clips on, so I think if there if there is an app and you probably know of one, they should ship they should ship you a clip for your phone so it <laughs> mounts onto the drum because that's the whole convenience of the TuneBot is it clips on the drum and it makes tuning really easy. So I don't doubt that your phone is powerful enough to pick up frequency. I just don't know how you hold it and do it at the same time while hitting the drum with a stick and having a key in the other hand. So so what is your answer to that, bud? There's there's a few. I mean, on on the App Store, there's one called iDrum Tuner. There's Drum Tune Pro. There's Drum Hyphen Tuner. Um, a couple of these I've checked out and a couple I haven't, so I can't verify. But they're, they're cheap enough. I think, I think they're only a couple bucks where you can just buy one and see if it works. If it doesn't work, then buy another one. Once you get to three or four, then just get a TuneBot and not worry yeah. about it. But and also, there's just some free chromatic guitar tuners on the App Store, which is essentially the exact same thing. It's it's just a, a chromatic tuner with filters that get rid of the extreme highs and lows, so it focuses in. Um, but I say just get a TuneBot. Honestly, I mean, trust me, guys. I bought the TuneBot, the original one, which was more expensive than the current one. I bought it just to make fun of it. I bought it to save you guys from having to buy it. So I went to Guitar Center, and I just said... Give me this $100 piece of crap, and I'll just buy it, and I'll try to tune a drum. It won't work. And the stupid thing worked, and it worked again, and it worked again, and then it became an invaluable tool. And that's when I hit up TuneBot and said, hey, 
I don't need an endorsement. I don't want anything for free. But if you want, I'll make a video for you guys because because you guys solved a problem and that's important to drumming and yep. it just works. And I think that I think really you're getting a two dollar tuner with a sixty dollar clip, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> right? <laughs> fine by me. Just give me the damn clip because I try. When the apps came out, I got them. I bought them, and I was like, wait, I had to hold it in my mouth. I'm like, how the hell do you hold this? Yeah, and it's your phone. I mean, I think. It, it'll it'll die. You could drop it. You could break it. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't trust your phone for for drum tuning. I just wouldn't. The last like, thing I want to do is leave my cell phone at a dirty club yeah. while trying to tune my drums, and then <laughs> boom, all the pictures that I take of my calves show up on the internet. It's just <laughs> bad. <laughs> all right, so we do not have any time to take any extra questions. So hopefully, this was fun for everyone and. We'll get back to our... Uh, Dude, that was freaking awesome. It's so great to hear everybody's voice. Yeah. That was, was just amazing. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for... Honestly, thank you for telling us that this podcast helps get you through it because it's a bit of work and we love doing it, but when we hear stuff like that, it, then it's not work at all. It's just... It's amazing to know that we're able to be on that ride to work with you or on the jog around the... You know, just to get out. Uh, I love it. So. Yeah, all the all-fair cuss words that we share back and forth are... <laughs> <laughs> They're so worth it now. Uh, if you had any idea of the technical problems that went into this exact episode, woo, doggies. But we made it through. Made it through episode 50. Mike, thanks for doing this with me, man. Yeah, likewise. So we got, What are we going to do for 100? we got to start thinking now. <laughs> I'm flying to New York. <laughs> i, I got to visit Modern Drummer. I've never been there. Yeah, right. Uh, well, we should do a live one, maybe. That, that would be great, man. All right, buddy. Well, have a great day, and I will see you uh, next week for All episode right. 51 with no fanfare whatsoever. <laughs> <All> <laughs> Stupid <right>. old 51. <laughs> All right, buddy. Later. See ya.